You're listening to Fair Market Value, Christie's Art Market Insights Podcast. Hello and welcome to Fair Market Value, Christie's Art Market Insights Podcast. I'm Joey Quigley. I'm a vice president in Christie's Trusts, Estates, and Appraisals Department here, and my co-host, Joanna Ostrom. Hi, I'm so thrilled to be here with you, Joey. I am the co-head of Christie's Trusts, Estates, and Appraisals team in New York. And Joey, it's so great to be back here for episode number two. Episode two. We've made it to number two. Look at us. We're going places. Look at us go. And I guess I want to take this opportunity to thank all of our listeners. We had some amazing responses and great feedback to the first episode. We urge you to continue sharing your thoughts. We're so glad to have you back. And we have some exciting, an exciting lineup for you today. And if you liked last show, if you like this show, make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And so you can automatically get our next podcast uh, as it comes out. And also updates about the exciting things happening at Christie's. We are thrilled to be entering into our May sale season in a few short weeks And it's going to be an incredible sale with a lot of fantastic collections, which is something that is near and dear to us in our role in the trust and estates world. And um, like we said in the in the first episode, what some people don't know, but all of our uh, preview exhibitions are uh, open to the public. It's it's like a museum at Rockefeller Center Um, that we have those dates here and the. 20th and 21st century preview opens on Saturday, April 30th. So come on down. Um, and the sales will be from May 9th to May 14th. So there's so much to see in our galleries at that time. So please come on down and, and give yourself some time. We can't wait to see you at Christie's. So with that, let's launch into our episode. Well, we have a wonderful guest for our episode today. This is Max Carter, who's the head of our Impressionist and Modern Art Department in New York and has worked on some of the top collections that we've offered for sale in the last decade. Uh, and so welcome to the podcast, Max. Uh, welcome, why don't you Max. tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Christie's? Delighted to be here. My name is Max Carter. I'm the head of the Impressionist and Modern Art Department at Christie's here in New York. I started at Christie's 15 years ago, I think. Me too. Yeah, there we go. Shared early history there. I've been the head of the department for five years, which feels like a long time now. <laughs> um, uh, I love the job because no two days are alike. That you know, which is an, an old chestnut, but very true here. Uh, you get to be a bit of an all rounder. You get to, to to work with all our great colleagues across the business, to, to speak every day with with great clients, to see great works of art every day. There's there's really nothing nothing that we do at Christie's that I don't get to put my you know put my hand in in some way. And so you get to work with so many different things, but can you tell us here, just for our listeners, what your favorite thing is about your job? My favorite thing about my, I, you know, there's, I, I think, I think getting to record this podcast, yeah, this podcast, exactly. podcast, exactly. That's you know, this this is a new a new favorite part of my job. No, I my favorite thing about the job, I love I love the works of art. So that's that's unique to Christie's, and that's something that's that's so special. The people at Christie's, it's a family. The clients, you start to feel that way too, and 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 actually. You know, I'm not sure what this says about me, but the sense of client service and and interacting with clients and delivering an experience that makes them happy brings me great joy. <laughs> and if you, when you when you when you tie that in with with the great works of art we get to handle and see every day, it's it's a special a special combination. So I think we want to talk a little bit later on in this episode about some of the amazing collections that we have coming up uh, in May. But I thought it could be good for our audience just to set the stage a little bit and talk about, like, where are we in the Impressionist modern art market? What is what has come before? What's this moment that we're kind of entering into? I'm going to give you from, like, the cradle to grave. Please Go do. Our it. listeners want to hear <laughs> yeah. it all. Yeah, A to Z. 
So, so obviously the impressionist movement it comes out of the traditional salon kind of market model in the mid mid nineteenth century. Most of the impressionist artists wanted to be part of the salon were rejected and had to forge this this alternative path. The the market the commercially was unsuccessful from its its start in the eighteen seventies through to the mid eighteen eighties, and only with bringing pictures to America in eighteen eighty six was this movement really saved from poverty and obscurity. So. The artist started having more money, having more financial wherewithal for long-term projects. Monet launched on a, a, a series of, of very ambitious serial projects. American collectors, again, really were the catalyst for all of this. And then in the 20th century, it became a truly global asset that people saw. In the post-war, there's there's a sale in 1958 that was considered to be the first real triumph at, at auction. It was It was in London. And then the Japanese got into the market in the 1980s. That added new new heights to the market. You had Europeans in the, in the market in the 70s and 80s, Japanese coming in through the 80s and, and sort of stopping around 1990. And then a sort of a flat point in the 1990s, you, you get to, to, to the early 2000s after the dot-com crash. You have more Americans driving the market. Another slight dip after the, the financial crisis, the YSL sale in 2009, <laughs> reigniting everything. And then since there, was a, there was a moment around 2010, 2011, when the market felt slightly flat and, and, and steady and, and without a huge sense of growth or possibility. And then there was a resurgence from Asian, very, this newfound Asian interest, particularly from mainland China, and this new generation of wealthy aspirational collectors. And that was a shot in the arm, not just because we had new buyers, but you had people in the West seeing these objects through a different lens with this new new collecting group, and so since then, you know, for the for the major works of art, they can be sold to Asia, to America, to Europe, and right now we have demand from all corners of the globe, and and, and what we have this season is we're actually able to match it with masterpiece supply. Mm. It's very exciting. It's so great to be reminded of this incredible longevity in this category, and the fact that it has had such staying power. And there haven't been as many blips, perhaps, as there have been in other categories, as many ups and downs. So that obviously bodes well for what we have coming up. Indeed, and the, bl- the blips are comparatively short too. Yeah. I mean, at, like after the, after the financial crisis, there was maybe six months where mm. where the market. What do you attribute that to? What is it that's that's unique to this category and this these works of art? I, th- I think it, it's it's the sweet spot that we're talking about impressionist to to you know early post war art. So from Monet to Picasso, Matisse, and maybe the early early New York school works. It, it's it's you have both the sense of history that you had in the past with old master paintings, but you also have a sense of supply and mm. and, and, and adventure, and that's it's. It's the sweet spot in between very contemporary things and, again, the old masters. And can you talk a little bit about the development of the market, let's say, between, like, 2020 and now? So, like, we're in 2022. Like, what have the last few years been like with coronavirus and, like, coming out of that and now back into this hybrid world that we're in? Like, what is this moment right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the past two years were challenging because of uncertainty, but it, looking back now with perfect hindsight, there, the, the, the demand never really left. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in March 2020, I think everyone in the world was going, you know, are we going over a cliff and what's going to happen with not just with the art market, but with, with the world in general. And I think if you look at the, the, the sales we've been, we were able to have, and obviously we had to, to innovate and evolve because <laughs> having an evening sale with no one in the sale room was a very, very <laughs> that was a departure a very, from how we yes, normally a very grim, a very grim uh, experience. But what we evolved in that way, which was a very positive development and something that had been a long time in the making, but it definitely kickstarted and, and expedited changes that were already underway. And now all of our viewers can watch our evening sales wherever they are from around the world. It's a beautifully produced live stream, and so that's been to your point a great 
evolution that we can thank COVID for. And I'm told it's fun. I, I, I've watched very few of the auctions, but <laughs> As a you're in the I can tell yeah, you okay, that you're a great Please. performer. Okay, we yes. love seeing okay. you on the big screen. Yeah. The talent, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. talent. Inverted commas, yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, if you look at we had we had fewer we, we we changed our sales schedule during the pandemic to, in part to reflect this and in part to make sure we were selling at moments that were most appropriate and positive for our consigners. So we had our first our first big evening sale in July, which in, in the past if you'd set, have an evening sale in July it would have been the kiss of death. I laughed because yes, yeah. I, it was, I, and then we had a, another evening sale in October, which is not a time we usually had these sales and and so on and so forth. But if you look at the the results for each one of these sales. Right. These things are, you know, over 90% of the lots are selling. There's multiple bidders per lot. And that was through, true throughout the pandemic. And if, if you look at a graph, actually, of how, how steady that those, those per percentages were relative to cases, which were up and down, up and down, it was remarkably steady. Hmm. And it was really the only, the only, the only variable, the demand was steady, the only variable was supply. Hmm. Very interesting. And I guess it sounds like the answer, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like the, the answer will be yes. Do you anticipate this trend continuing in light of some of the geopolitical things happening, like the war in Ukraine, other interest rates rising, other factors like that? Please do put words on my mouth. I'm <laughs> much, much more articulate and uh, true than what I'm about to say. Yes. I don't want to lead the witness. No, so exactly, exactly, exactly. Do you think? Objection. Yeah, objection. Yeah. It's, um, I look, no, no, you know. No, no crystal ball, but yeah, I think I think if, if if past performance and recent performance is anything to go by, yes, I think there's there's nothing as long as this, the good supply is there and people are excited about the works of art that are out there. I, I think I see no no reason for change. And then I think it's a good segue then to talk about supply. We happen to have two amazing collections out of many collections coming up, one being the Jacobs collection, one being the Bass collection. And lucky us, we have the two drivers of both collections here in the podcast studio by complete coincidence. What a coincidence. Uh, Joanna for the Jacobs collection and Max for Bass. And so, Joanna, maybe kick us off and talk a little bit about the Jacobs collection. Yes. What a pleasure to speak about this collection that I've been working on for many years now, and we are thrilled to be offering in our sale on May 14th. In a, in a few short weeks. Um, and this collection is, it's really representative of the leading surrealists of the movement. Um, but it's, I think it's also a testimony to the couple who built this collection and their deep personal relationships with the artists who created the works that, that filled this collection. Rosalind and Melvin Jacobs were both retail executives. Roz started her career as a buyer for Macy's, and it was through some of these buying trips to Paris that she was introduced to the artists of this circle. Each work that entered their home really has a unique story and a direct link to the artist. Many of these works were gifts, and oftentimes she was, they were buying, Roz and Mel were buying works directly from the artists, artists who were their friends who they really wanted to support. They were fortunate to have gotten to know the American artist couple, Bill and Noma Copley, who were spending time in France and really were at the center of this movement. And it was through the Copleys that they made these deep connections. And as I mentioned, Man Ray was really critical to the story of their collection. He became a dear friend, and they he photographed Roz on a number of occasions. And it was actually at one of his exhibitions where he was showing one of these photographs of Roz that she saw another work that really struck her, her fancy. And she said, I must own this. And this work is a photograph by Man Ray called Le Violon d'Angre. 
it's a very iconic image that many of you will know of a it's a, of a woman's back with two f holes on on the reverse. Um, it's been reproduced millions of times, and this is a photograph that will be sold in this sale, and we expect it to achieve a world record price for a photograph at auction. But there are many other works in the collection by other incredible artists like Magritte, Duchamp, Dorothea Tanning, a great female surrealist, Max Ernst, Tongi, and. The great thing about this collection is there is a wide variety of price points. So while the Man Ray photograph may sell for $10 million, there are other objects that are priced much more accessibly, including some really fantastic artist jewelry that I think will be a great discovery in this sale. And, and you know, while this was a couple that, that, was, that was building this collection, Rosalind Jacobs was really a, the, a major force behind building this collection, and she was she was so close to many of these artists. And while Mel did play an important role, this really this, this is in many ways a female driven collection, which is bears some similarities to to the Bass collection that Max you worked very closely on, and I know you have some things to share with us. The two great female collections. You know, in the in the time that I've been at Christie's, there is you know there the, the Mrs. Bass's collection is unique. I'm 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 a both a visual person, but also someone who who, who you know, I read for an hour every morning. I love I love I love the written word, and, and her collection is very special because it, both the way those who are lucky enough to to experience it in her home, how we're going to try to to which we're going to try to replicate after some fashion in our exhibition, in our catalog, and all of our materials. But seeing the the selection of of twelve masterpieces was like reading a wonderful book. And in, in the sense of, of this continuous overlapping, interlocking dialogue between the works in terms of the rhythm, in terms of, of, of works which reward repeated views and, mm. and the sense of thoughtfulness, there's, there really hasn't been anything quite like it in my, in my, um, in my time. There are 12, it's a selection of 12 works from her, uh, this extraordinary Mark Hampton design department in New York. And there, there's no, there's no false moment. There's no, you know, we all make mistakes. There are no mistakes. Every, each one of the twelve works is alpha quality, and between the works, there's, there's, the through, the, you know, different through lines, different senses of dialogue and and, and affinity. And therefore, the way we've, the way it was in her apartment, the way we're going to try to recreate it in our, in our view, and the way the catalog reads is four distinct chapters. Mm. So the first chapter is, which is the most, perhaps the most personal, is is Duga. She was a great, Mrs. Bass was a great lifelong lover, supporter, and student of, of dance and ballet. And she had, of course, mm. the, the th- she had three Degas, but e- each one was in a different medium, a different medium that he mastered. There's an oil, a pastel, and a, and a bronze. Um, and one of the first things you saw in the apartment was the great Degas bronze, which is the, the, the 14-year-old dancer, I mean, arguably the one of the most important sculptures of the 19th century. And... This is a very early cast. The, cat, the estate cast these bronzes from the 1920s through the 1950s. The first casts were in 1922, and actually Mrs. Havemeyer commissioned the first set. So if you go to the Met, the A, so-called A-letter casts are all hers. They're all at the Met. Um, this cast was commissioned directly from the foundry in August 1927, which is, which is very early and also kind of amazing to have that early, very specific date and paperwork. Um, and the, the man who commissioned that, his name was Charles Liebman, and he kept the bronze until 1955. It was, it was sold by his family in a sale at Park Burnett, New York in 1955. It was bought by Charles Payson, who later inherited the Mets, a great, great New York, mm. New York connection there. And in, in an only in New York kind of story, he lived in the same apartment that Mrs. Bass ultimately oh. bought. The very same one? Yes, the very same apartment. So the bronze lived at 965th from 1955. 
Whoa. onwards was a tenant in the same place and was taken out for the first time in 70 years recently. Was well, it was it in the same spot in the apartment? We don't have we haven't been able to find okay. Payson archival photography, but who knows? Important but, question, who lives there now because that should be the next buyer. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it needs to it needs to remain. It needs I, to go I, home. Yeah, yeah apartment has, it's has, very has, important. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's so it's so used to being there. What incredible provenance from this collection. So that's that's the the sort of Dugan chapter and then you move in, in, in the same sort of entryway there she the great Baltus young girl at a window hanging opposite the Hammershoy. That's sort of chapter two. You have these these paintings at the window, girls with their backs to you. Um, bought it at not they were not bought at the same time. She bought the Baltus around nineteen eighty five and the Hammershoy around nineteen eighty nine. But these paintings have this affinity with one another, and they're actually connected by the Austrian poet Rilke, mm. who, is, who is, as far as I can tell, the only person who knew these two artists. Um, he met Hammershoy in the early 20th century, was an early champion, and he was the boyfriend of Baltus's mother. So, so mm. a very personal connection to each. He also shared their, their obsession with windows in the sense of liminality and mystery and possibility and wrote poetry um, about, about windows. And... The, the two paintings just work together in such an amazing way and, again, faced off with each other for, for you know, over 30 years. Um, chapter three, and you move into the into the living room, is are these red Rothkos from the early 1960s. It's incredible to have, would be incredible to have one of the Rothkos in the sale. Having both as a pair is, is, a, is a really unique proposition. And, and the, the paintings just work so, so beautifully mm-hmm. together. So they've been together for this long. Hopefully they'll remain together. And the final chapter. The is final chapter. The the final count. The final chapter is you. And if you look in in in, in at the pictures from her apartment, the the two Rothkos hung side by side, and then through to the dining room, you saw this apparition, this <laughs> this sort of backlit, numinous Monet Parliament that really picked up on the the two Rothkos as well. And that's the the final chapter is Monet and how how not only how that inter- interacts with and and lays the groundwork for the New York School and for Rothko and everything that came after. But you go and you went into this dining room, and we're going to recreate this in the view. But it was not just the Parliament; there were three pinnacle serial paintings in the dining room, hanging on different walls. So there was the Parliament in the middle, there was the Poplars on the left, and the Nymphias on the right. And they're they're united not just because they're all AAA masterpieces from highly sought after series, but because actually each of these also has has a, a unique. But but similar American history to it. So the the Poplars is the first to be painted in 1891. That was bought by an American collector called Henry Sales in Boston in 1892. So it went immediately to this emerging Gilded Age class of American collectors. The the Parliament was finished in 1903. That was bought by the Putnam family in Boston, who were who were sort of forebears of McGeorge Bundy. So nice political kind of connection there. And then the final the Nymphias was bought by a man named James Viles in Chicago. In 1911, it was painted in 1907. So each of the three went into a great American, a different American collection within five years of being painted. And there's this great story of America, which really saved Impressionism in the, in the 1880s. But it was this vanguard of of these forward-looking um, American collectors. And again, each one was was in was in a great American collection throughout the 20th century. The Nymphias was at the Art Institute of Chicago for for a period of time, and then all three ending up back together in the same room. For the last 40 years so we feel very privileged to have them together that's the final chapter that's the conclusion um and that's how the sale is sort of laid out as well can you tell us a little bit more about ann bass as a as a collector and as a as a person and maybe her history how that relates to the collection well i'm I, that's, this this might be a stretch i'm reviewing a uh or I've, i reviewed a book about um the the ancient persian kings for this weekend's wall street journal 
And one of the, the ethos. Can't wait to see how you how, how, we, how I work my way back around to you know, but the ethos um, uh, of the one of the court sort of you know in, in at court in court life to be invisible was to, was to have the sense of prestige, the sense mm-hmm. of mystery was was what you strive for, not this this awful twenty first century thing of throwing oneself out there at all at all times. And there's a great sense that she had this you know she was acknowledged for having this sense of of poise and thoughtfulness and that that is that is you know it's a it's a dying quality it's a very special the sense of of understanding beauty and understanding perfection and and respecting it and striving for it um and you see that in all of the works you know with with the the Degas pastel it looks like you know someone just sitting down adjusting the 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 slipper if you're not you know acquainted with dance but every every muscle every every sinew is is perfect and perfectly she's perfectly turned out it's it, you know in the the bronze the the Degas, um, sculpture is the same way there's a, there's just a sense of of, of poise hmm. that that is reflected in the works and I'm glad you shared so much about the interesting provenance for many of these works because I think that also does speak to the thoughtfulness, the intentionality of the way that she was collecting. I mean, there was a deliberateness, it seems like, to some of the choices she was making and being part of this important history of, 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 of provenance of many of these works. Yeah, and, and look, I, I, again, I mean, you know, collecting like virtually anything else in life is about trial and error, making mistakes, evolving. But some people are, are some people have have you know. Are, are, are you know spe- have a, a specially decisive and and thoughtful approach and again of these twelve works there is no there's no mistake mm-hmm. every everything everything was a hit you know there was no there was no weak moment it would be interesting to hear from your perspective what makes a state property so exciting to the market I think we all anticipate a lot of great reactions to both this collection to the Amon collection to the Jacobs collection and I'd love to hear what you think about maybe what unifying or similar threads are through some of these these estates that make them compelling to buyers. Of course. Well, the, the I mean first and foremost it's about the the connection with the person and their story and and you know aspiring to what that person stood for, how they carried themselves, how they lived their lives, their sense of style. Um, that's that's you know we see that time and again with these two coll- with the, the Mrs. Bass's collection and with the Jacobs collection that's that will be very much a, 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 you know an important an important ingredient. There's a sense of discovery with estate works for the most part they've been tucked away in, in you know in, in private homes for many many years and not seen you know maybe seen infrequently in museums but not seen publicly and not seen you know not not have, weren't offered offered for sale were were things that were lived with and loved and that's that's quite quite special and then the final piece is if if you were if you have an estate or a collection that had a real sense of coherence and told a story you see things in a different a different manner in the same way that when you go to a great museum retrospective and you see works in dialogue with one another you might think of works in a different way and it might elevate your experience of individual works so those three things together is what what makes estate so special and when you have all three of them that's when you get results which are which are unexpected and 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 you know, record-breaking. And I guess to that end, too, we're talking about the Bass Collection and the, like, distinguished provenance of the things that she bought and, like, the important collections from the, from the works that she kind of acquired. And we hope that one day maybe this will be one of those markers, right, is that this kind of, like, puts a seal on these works that they were from this collection and that in future future sales 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you can look back and say this was in the Bass Collection. Is that kind of... Uh, 
Yeah, there. I mean, we for you know, if you if you sell a great work of art or a great collection, the 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 collector's name would will be attached to that object. Generally speaking, for many years after the fact, you know, David Rockefeller sold an amazing Rothko in in the early two thousands that's still referred to as as mm -hmm. the Rockefeller Rothko. You know, you you these 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 you know affiliations are carried around and it's a positive for the work because there is a shared sense of history ultimately ownership you know you're a steward of the work but your story is part of the the, the object story too max this has been great um I, it's now time for our bonus round which i think you've prepared for hopefully i have, I have not i'm sorry he's not I, at all prepared that, this is this is going to be a lightning, Let's lightning see how this goes. Round. it's a lightning round so in the bonus round we like to ask our guests um of an exhibition that's upcoming or a show or something they're reading something about uh, the art that they interact with that they're really exciting about, excited about coming up. So is there anything coming up that you're really looking forward okay. to? Okay. Uh, or or from the past that you've recently enjoyed. Yeah. Okay. Well I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I'm gonna do like free association lightning rounds, right. one for each. Something in the past, MoMA had an overwhelmingly good Cezanne watercolor exhibition, which I probably went to six times mm. and, and still felt like I didn't I didn't fully wrap my wrap my arms around it. I actually took my one-year-old son to it, which was a mistake. Did he love it? <laughs> you know, I was going to say. Was, he was very focused on, he was very focused on the, the light installation in the lobby, and that was, that was where his interest began. In that. <laughs> what I'm reading right now, there is, it, this is, book is yet to come out, but in the fall, there is a biography of the great British painter John Constable, who is hmm. my favorite painter, even though he's not strictly in Ooh, my... Ooh, secrets revealed My category, here. yes. My favorite painting in the world is a, is a Constable, which is at the Frick, called The White Horse. Hmm. So that is the... That, that, that is a book I am very eager to, to read. I read a, a biography which came out a number of years ago, but, but I've read... This is the author is a guy called James Hamilton who wrote a great biography of Gainsborough. He wrote an, a very nice biography of Turner many years ago, and he wrote a, an interesting book about the 19th century art trade a few years ago. So hmm. he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very good writer and, and a subject that is very near and dear to me. Can't wait to read that. Thanks, Max. That was a great interview. I learned a lot. I, I think Joanna probably I learned did a too. lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. Uh, this was great. We look forward to seeing you at our preview at Rockefeller Center, uh, which opens again on Saturday, April 30th. So you could see all of these works in person there. Yeah, that's a reminder to our listeners as well. You are all invited to Christie's, so we hope to see you in a few short weeks at Christie's. And we hope you'll join us again in less than a month for episode three. Yeah, see you at the next one. <laughs>